Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am doing well, enjoying a beautiful, beautiful morning in the shadows of Carter Mountain here in Wyoming, getting ready to pack my stuff and head to the UK. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I know you guys are going to have a lot of fun over there, but we are going to have a lot of fun today when we cover Spring Stampede 1994. But before we do, we should circle back to last week. It was that April edition of Monday Nitro from 2000, where you guys hit the reset button. You stripped all the champions. You personally took the world title off of Psycho Sid Vicious, and you had joined forces for an unholy union with Vince Russo and it turns out it was a pretty popular show to cover. Uh, Eric Bischoff covered it, Tony Schiavone covered it, and Vince Russo covered it. We got three different perspectives on a pretty monumental week in wrestling. What was the feedback you got from last week's episode? Uh, a lot of really noticeable that I got a lot more feedback on this one than I thought I would. In fact, I've got a lot more feedback on this particular episode than I have on probably the last three or four. So it was, uh, it was, it was great feedback. It was positive. I think a lot of people who either weren't around or weren't wrestling fans back in 1999 actually went and checked it out on the WWE Network and found it to be a pretty good show. So, all in all, a good choice to cover. I'm glad we did. Well, let's get into a different era today. We're going all the way back to 1994. I can't believe it, but we just passed the 25th anniversary of this show. It would have been last Wednesday. It's spring stampede 94 and we're live from the Rosemont horizon in Chicago, man. They got a lot of great shows there in just a few years. They're going to host Bret Hart and stone cold, Steve Austin for WrestleMania 13, one of the best matches of all time. And this is one of the more underrated shows in WCW history. It does 122,000 buys, which is a 0.53 buy rate, which means it brought in about 1.37 million gross. Uh, there's 12,200 fans in attendance, about 9,000 of those paid the gates, roughly 125 grand and Meltzer would say the paid crowd gate was the largest for WCW in North America since the flare sting title change at the 1990 Baltimore bash. In fact, it was the largest paid crowd to attend a wrestling show in the Rosemont horizon for either promotion in several years as the late 91 flare Hogan WWF match in the same building drew 8,000 paid and $135,000. So a huge financial success here. And it's an interesting time in WCW because throughout this broadcast, you guys are teasing that Ric Flair has his sights set on Hulk Hogan. He's actually offered him tickets and left him tickets to come see him take care of steamboat, which I guess is looking a little bit past steamboat. But when you know, you've got the biggest acquisition in wrestling history coming your way. Why not promote it? You have to be feeling pretty good about the numbers here. And WCW feels like they're probably pointed in the right direction when we're having some, some records here, right? 
we were excited about it. I think if you go back and and look at that period of time, you, you also have to understand that we we're coming off some of the worst experiences WCW had been through, you know, with the Bill Watts mess and and the bad PR associated with it, the horrible revenues associated with that era, and in even previous to the Bill Watts um, regime. So any little thing that was a positive indicator, regardless of how big or small, was welcomed with open arms. And certainly we, we were feeling good here, we're knowing that you know Hulk Hogan was coming in, feeling like we were finally at least beginning to right the ship coming off of the Bill Watts thing. Uh, yeah, we were excited, but it didn't take much to get us excited at that point. If the wind shifted direction and was even slightly at our back, it was a good day. So yeah, we were, we were pretty happy about it. This is the first spring stampede. You know, I, I admit, I don't know. So I'm just going to go into this blindly. That feels like a dusty Rhodes name. It feels like a dusty Rhodes kind of theme. He was, you know, famous for the bunkhouse stampede and, uh, he loved the cowboy Western themes. Talk to me a little bit about where spring stampede come from. Was it a dusty creation? Absolutely. I mean, it was, all dusty roads. And, and, you know, it was a good pay-per-view. There was a lot, you know, I remember, I don't remember which year it was, but I remember, you know, we had matches and pig pens and hog troughs and all kinds of crazy, you know, off the wall stuff that, that Dusty got a big kick out of. But yes, it definitely was a, a vision, a vision, if you will, baby, of Dusty Rhodes. Let's talk a little bit about a little cosmetic thing that I noticed you guys started doing here. I think this is the first pay-per-view with the WCW, I don't know, I guess crosshairs logo, you know, it's almost, um, yeah, we'll call it crosshairs. You know what I'm talking about? Whose idea was, was that from a branding perspective and who thought it would be a cool look for the mat? You know, we had started, uh, reworking our graphics, uh, for WCW Saturday night, a lot of the imagery for logos and posters and things like that. And Sharon Sadello headed most of that up and worked closely with the graphics department over at Turner Broadcasting to come up with different ideas. I think the logo that you're referring to was really created to be a to try to be consistent with the look and the feel of the WCW Saturday night open. Uh, it had that industrial kind of look. If you remember, yep. Um, and, and this logo was created to be consistent with that and try to extend that brand. Let's talk about where business is, uh, relative to a year prior. This is one of my favorite parts of the show. We get to sort of see where the company was a year prior and then where they are at the time of the show we're covering back in April of 93, you guys are averaging 1,520 fans. You're actually down about 5% here in April of 94 to 1,440 fans, but your average ticket price is actually up. So your average gate in April of 93 is $14,300. Come April of 94, it's $15,220. And ratings are actually up 5% as well from a 2.0 to a 2.1. If you had to sort of categorize the way you felt, this is pre Hogan 94 now where WCW was say the first quarter of 93 versus the first quarter of 94. Did you feel like you were still sort of, I mean, like, are we going up? Are we trending up? Are we trending down? Or are we just trading water? 
well, no, we were treading water in many respects. But what what you don't see in those numbers uh, were the fact that we were cutting a tremendous amount of costs uh, prior to prior to this pay-per-view in particular, but, you know, through at the end of 93, all of 94 at this point, the first quarter of 94, most of the focus was not so much on how do we, how do we increase revenues? We knew that that was the long-term goal, of course, but we also knew that in the short term, if we didn't, you know, manage our costs better, um, we wouldn't be around long enough for any long-term goals. So most of the emphasis was on cost-cutting, not generating more revenue, although increasing ticket prices. I think we may have had a pay-per-view price increase that was either in place or being contemplated at this point in time. So we were looking at ways to increase revenue, but the majority of, of our effort was in cutting costs. And I think if you look at those numbers, if, if you were an accountant or a business analyst, Safe to say, we were flatlining on on the revenue side of things. But as I said, on the cost cutting side of the equation, we had made a lot of progress. Did I hear you just crack a beer? Well, roll tide, man. We're talking about WCW. I love that beer for breakfast. You're my man. <laughs> so WCW Saturday night is the the marquee show for the company. This is pre Nitro, and leading up to this event. Gene Okerlund is, is, is saying that he's talked to Hogan and Hogan has told him he's going to be at ringside. And this is again, as I mentioned, plugged throughout the show. I mean, it is a big acquisition. Uh, we know the deal was worked out earlier in the week. Um, so Hogan's coming in, but he's not actually on the show. Of course, Meltzer and everybody, you know, who, who wrote about the sport back then talked a lot about how this was false advertising. When, what was the discussion like? Was Hogan ever supposed to appear here, or were you guys comfortable in teasing that he would or might, and then not actually delivering? There were a lot of conversations during the course of the week. You know, Ric Flair and Hulk were talking, you know, together quite a bit. I was talking to Hulk a lot. Um, and, you know, there was a lot going on as we were getting ready to close that deal. Um, I don't think. Well, it's not that I don't think. I know there was no deliberate intention to mislead anybody. We were under the impression, at least for the better part of a week, that Hulk was going to be there. And I think he intended to be there. But as so often happens when when dealing with talent, what they say and what they're actually able to do sometimes come into conflict. I don't know what the situation was with Hulk. I don't know why he ended up not coming. But originally, we thought he was going to make it in. I know where this next question is probably going to go, and I would ask it if I were you. In fact, I'm asking it of myself. Why the fuck did Gene promote it during the pay-per-view if we knew it wasn't going to happen? (laughs) (laughs) There's no denying that that was a horrible decision. Um, I would have to take responsibility for that. Um, Even though I wasn't the one promoting it, I certainly didn't instruct Gene to do so. But again, as we've covered in past, you know, podcasts, Gene was incentivized um, to generate as much revenue as he possibly could with with the 900 line. And I think Gene took it upon himself, quite honestly, to stretch the truth that may have existed on Wednesday or Thursday when we thought we was coming in. We we thought Hulk was coming in. I think Gene decided. You know what? I'm just gonna 
pretend I don't know he's not here and and promote the fact that, you know, he was going to be there. So I, it, it's regrettable, you know, looking back at it and thinking about it. It's one of those things like, oh, God, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Or I wish I wouldn't have allowed that to happen, but I did. Let's double down on the Hulk Hogan talk for a minute here. Um, Meltzer would say there's a lot of strategy involved in this because if McMahon were to believe that Hogan would refuse to come back to Titan, which would be Hogan's option, he could match the offer block WCW from using Hogan and it wouldn't cost him a cent. However, if Hogan were to return, obviously we're talking about a multi-million dollar offer to a company that is taking severe financial hits at the present time, not to mention the situation it would create internally. If Hogan were to return to the company at this point, even for a short period of time, no terms have been released on the Hogan deal. Although the new England sports network ran a story on Hogan agreeing to the deal, uh, reporting that Hogan as receiving $600,000 or 40% of the company grows for every pay-per-view event. And Meltzer would even say, I have no idea if those numbers are even close. Although if that figure is correct for WCW to equal its current profit level on pay-per-view events by adding Hogan to the mix. Uh, he would have to, I can't believe this is real. WCW would have to increase its buy for all three Hogan events to $227,000, a 0.99 buy rate, uh, or else it would be a money losing deal for pay-per-view. So let's just take a timeout right there. Again, even Meltzer is skeptical. The new England sports network says Hogan got 600 G's or 40% of the company gross set the record straight. My head is spinning, trying to decipher what Dave Meltzer wrote. Now, I understand the latter portion of it as you read it, but the the idea that you know Vince McMahon had McMahon had any kind of option is laughable. Um, I, I don't understand. I mean, I mean, I can't even begin to comment on that. The, the first part of that uh, report, as you read it, it's just incomprehensible to me. As far as how much. Uh, Hogan got. Uh, that was a close uh, report by New England Sports Network. He his deal called for four pay per views a year, at a half a million dollars a pay per view. And there were in a, in a, you know in addition to the paper the compensation for the pay per view, those pay per views also included, I think it was either three or four weeks of television leading into the pay per view. So, and, and I think there was a clash of champions or two, you know, in that schedule as well, all under that, what is essentially a $2 million contract. That was basically the deal. Now there were some other, you know, there was some licensing and merchandising caveats, which by the way, didn't really matter because we weren't generating any revenue anyway in licensing and merchandising, not enough to matter at least. Um, but if you boil the, the meat off the bone and get right down to the basic facts of Hogan's deal, the original deal called for four pay-per-views a year at a half a million dollars a pay-per-view. Now, what's interesting and I think revealing about Dave's reporting on this or his analysis, there's nothing wrong with his reporting. He was reporting what somebody else said, and that's fine. But the analysis at the end of it, which is all Dave's, was that in order for this to make sense from WCW's point of view, he's only looking at the pay-per-view component. What Dave didn't understand then, and I doubt he would understand now, is that 
the strategy, the, the, the approach that we took was, and we've covered some of this before, having Hogan on board, even if we didn't cover his costs on pay-per-view, we believed, and as it turned out to be very true in 96, 97, 98, was that having Hogan on board would raise the tide uh, in all of the other areas of our business, not just pay-per-view. So we didn't go into this thinking, well, in order for this to make sense, you know, and, and to, you know, for Ho- the Hogan's deal to, to make financial sense, we're going to have to do this on each one of those pay-per-views. It wasn't the approach at all. The approach was having Hulk Hogan will get us, A, more press, more publicity that we can't afford to pay for. It will increase our viability internationally both for international television distribution, which was also a very big target for us. We knew that that was a way that we could really increase our bottom line revenue without any incremental costs associated with it, other than having Hogan a part of it. So we would spread Hogan's $2 million throughout the various revenue streams that WCW had in hopes of monetizing it and improving our bottom line. And as it turned out, it worked. But yeah, if you were to look at it as, you know, kind of a single focus and in order to, 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 you know, cover Hogan's agreement and compensation, you know, if you only looked at pay-per-view, I guess those numbers would make sense. But if that's the way you're approaching the business, you shouldn't be in the business. Fair enough. Uh, I think the whole, uh, Vince McMahon conversation came into play because Hulk Hogan was going to be involved in the Vince McMahon trial. Did y'all ever talk about Vince being on trial? You and Hulk? Huh. Yeah, a lot. You know, we, we talked about it then and Hulk was a little worried about how it would, as, as the trial got closer and closer, uh, in the press, started to heat up on it. I think Hulk uh, was a little concerned that Ted Turner, myself, Bill Shaw, uh, may get cold feet and start getting nervous about the commitment we were about to make to, to, to Hulk. Um, I had conversations, not with Ted, about this, uh, but certainly with Bill Shaw, who had conversations with Ted about it. And Ted was of the frame of mind, according to Bill Shaw, uh, that, look, that was then. This is now. That was Vince McMahon. It wasn't Turner Broadcasting. Let's move on. Ted wasn't afraid of it. Ted was fearless. I so admire that man, by the way. I just read an article about him in Variety Magazine recently. In fact, I posted it on Twitter um, because we talk about Ted a lot. Ted's been laying low in the media for the last several years. He's got a condition that's It's similar to having dementia, I guess. And, you know, we're going to hear less and less and less from Ted Turner. But I was so excited to read that article about him. And I encourage people to try to find it because he really was a a fearless entrepreneur. He wasn't afraid of anything. And that was reflected in in the fact that, you know, he was willing to go ahead and, and make the deal he made with Hulk Hogan, despite the fact that, you know, Hulk and Vince McMahon and wrestling in general was under a white hot spotlight. Let's talk about, um, somebody else who was under the spotlight right here. Jesse Ventura, uh, it's written in the observer. The only Mac only major backstage commotion regarded Ventura 
who arrived at the building completely unaware that he wouldn't be doing the play-by-play as apparently nobody in the company had informed him. Ventura opened the show with Gene Okerlund and with them alluding to his lawsuit victory. Quote, you look like a million bucks, Mean Gene said. Then he told the fans to call the hotline on Wednesday where Ventura would give all the details without ever specifically mentioning his court case against Titan Sports. Talk to me about Jesse Ventura. We've talked to him a little bit on the show here before, um, specifically about his firing and the rumor and innuendo surrounding that. When did you decide to make the transition that he wouldn't be doing play by play for this show? And he would be sort of a backstage correspondent, almost Missy Hyatt style. And how was that news received when you gave it to him? Uh, he wasn't really upset that I recall. He, he took it in stride. Just, he was a pro at that point. Uh, now this is the beginning of the deterioration, I guess, in the relationship between Jesse and WCW, because Jesse had very strong feelings about Hulk. Their, their history had gone back to a time when Jesse was really advocating, uh, unionization of, of wrestlers in, in WWF. Um, Hulk Hogan got in the middle of that. And according to Jesse, at least, uh, kind of stooged out, Jesse and his attempts to organize the talent backstage stooged out to Vince McMahon. I don't know what's true and what's not true. I try not to, you know, entrench myself too deeply in a position on things that I wasn't involved in because there's always another side to a story, sometimes three or four. But that was the case. Jesse had a real chip on his shoulder about Hulk. Now, as far as the, the decision to to take him out of the color commentary, he was never in a play-by-play position. He was always color commentary, and there's a big difference. But in, in terms of taking him out of color commentary, I think that was done – and it, that was my choice, my decision, primarily because Jesse could be overbearing. And it was not, he wasn't trying to be – he wasn't – his style was such that he got himself over a lot. And, and sometimes in the process – of, of getting himself over as a color commentator character, he kind of overwhelmed play by play and overwhelmed the story. So it was a, it was a decision I made because I wanted to try something different. Jesse was a great, great character. I love Jesse, Jesse Ventura's work. I re, I did when I was, you know, young growing up and watching when, when he was wrestling in the AWA, I really loved his work in WWF. And I loved his work in WCW to a point, but you know, Jesse is like fudge. Um, a little bit is great. Too much of it can get a little nauseating. And at this point I, I just wanted to try something different and see if it worked. There was no problem with it, with him. Uh, there's no problem necessarily in our relationship. It's just that I felt we needed to, we needed to try something new and try something different. Well, you definitely were here. Um, I guess we should remind everybody that in 1987, um, Ventura waived his rights to royalties for videotape sales. Uh, when he was falsely told that only feature performers would receive such royalties with the WWF in November of 91, he discovered that other non-feature performers did receive royalties and Ventura brought forward an action for fraud, misappropriation of publicity rights. Uh, and he, he, he pursued it right there in Minnesota and he asked Titan for $2 million in royalties based on what he believed to be 
fair market value. Uh, eventually Titan moved the case to federal court and Ventura won over $800,000 in a jury verdict. Uh, and the judge awarded him $8,600 in back pay. And, uh, this was a pretty monumental thing in wrestling was, was that, and obviously I realize you weren't necessarily, um, in, in power or in control in November of 91, when the lawsuit came to be, but when the decision comes down, is that discussed in WCW about how maybe you guys maybe need to change the way you were handling some things, tighten up some contracts, or is it just business as usual? No, it was business as usual for us because of the structured nature of our agreements didn't uh, leave us vulnerable for that type of thing. We weren't paying on a, a revenue share uh, model, which is, which is what opened up the door for Jesse to sue WWF. Our, our agreements with our talent were very straightforward. We're going to pay you X. This is what you're going to do. And you get no revenue share from any of the on-camera work that you do. It was so cut and dry that it was not, it just wasn't an issue that we were concerned about because of the nature of our agreements. Somebody who, uh, is concerned in this era is too cold Scorpio. He's fired the week prior to spring stampede and in shoot interviews in years past, he said that he feels like he was cut because he failed too many piss tests. Apparently, yeah. uh, he enjoyed marijuana and that was on WCW's radar. You know, better than anybody. Why was Scorpio cut a week prior to spring stampede? I think, I don't think I've ever met anybody that smoked more weed than too cold Scorpio. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Rob Van Dam. I think Rob Van Dam might give him a run for his money. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he just, he, look, he didn't even try to hide it. You know, and back in 1994, if you, if you even put in just a little bit of effort, tried to pretend maybe, you know, you, you weren't smoking weed eight hours a day, you could probably get away with it. Uh, drug testing was not really a very effective science in, in WCW at the time. And, and admittedly it was not, especially for marijuana. Nobody was, you know, had their, their sights set on anybody that smoked weed. But, um, with Scorpio, you just, I mean, he'd be out in a parking lot smoking weed. He'd walk in from, you know, he'd walk into catering once he got to the building and he, and he's, he's, he smelled like a cannabis factory. It just, we, we had to do it. We had to fire him. And it was too bad because, I, number one, I liked him. Uh, he was a cool guy. And he was an amazing, amazing performer. Uh, we had all the potential in the world, but we just couldn't get him to put down the ganja. Well, somebody else is uh, maybe taking issue with WCW, and it's one of your personal favorites. And We've sort of beat around the bush for a long time here on the show, pardon the pun, but now we're going to double down on Missy Hyatt. She filed a claim with the Georgia equal employment opportunities commission, the EEOC on March 29th, claiming that during her five years of employment with WCW, she was quote, frequently sexually harassed by supervisors, cameramen and wrestlers, and was paid substantially less than male announcers with no greater professional talent. Of course, WCW yeah. doesn't comment on this, but she's suing for more than $2 million, uh, or, or threatening to rather, 
uh, in federal district court. And she says this is due to not only back pay, but monetary damages for emotional distress. And Meltzer would say the gist of the story is a photo was taken of Missy jumping into the ring where her breast fell out of her outfit. And he believes it was Starcade 93. This photo was then blown up and hung in the photo studio where several employees could see it. And, um, yeah, the story goes wide. Everybody is reporting it, you know, through the AP wire, uh, even Howard Stern, Rush Limbaugh, people like that are covering it. So this is the type of thing WCW likes to avoid. And now they find themselves in the middle of it. I do want to mention, uh, that she, um, moved from Atlanta to New York once she filed this complaint. And she was quoted as saying that WCW executives demanded that she play a bimbo role. And during her (laughs) tenure, she endured off color remarks and, uh, insistent requests for dates, not like performances, but you know, dates. Uh, and she claims she stuck it out only for more money, 700 and uh, I'm sorry, $75,000 per year. Uh, but that was, according to her, about a hundred thousand dollars less than other male announcers and managers. So she thinks you guys were giving her the runaround on her pay and asking her to do embarrassing things and humiliated her with this blown up photo. That's all her claim via, you know, the court documents and the observer. You were there. What really happened with Missy Hyatt? Well, she got fired and. And when she got fired, she got desperate. And as often uh, people did back then, especially people who lived in Atlanta and were familiar with the Turner Broadcasting culture, not necessarily the WCW culture, but the Turner Broadcasting culture. Turner Broadcasting was very uh, litigation shy. They did not like lawsuits. And again, I, you know, I sound like I'm you know, beating Bill Watts up with a crowbar here, and I don't mean to do that. But one has to, again, put yourself in the time and place. The... The press that WCW got over some of the comments that Bill Watts made uh, to Wade Keller and and, in other places, quite frankly, and some of the things that Bill Watts did internally, uh, you know, that fortunately never leaked out, no pun intended. Um, Turner Broadcasting was so gun shy. You know, Turner Corporate, again, wanted to pull the plug so badly on WCW because of everything that had happened, you know, during Bill Watts's tenure that the entire company was gun shy and, and everybody knew it. And, and, and all of the talent, you know, was never backstage. Everybody knew in a locker room, everybody knew that if you didn't like the way things were going with WCW, come up with some kind of bullshit lawsuit if you sue them for X amount of money but are willing to settle for $100,000 or less, you're going to get your check. Turner Broadcasting's own internal policy, it wasn't stated in, in writing anywhere, but we all knew as you know, division heads or operating heads that you know, the way Turner Broadcasting looked at things uh, is that it was, it was cheaper to make any lawsuit go away than to fight and win, even if you're right. So all you had to do was file a lawsuit, find some jag-off attorney that would be willing to find some, file some bogus bullshit claim. As long as everybody knew going in that you were willing to settle for $100,000 or less, you were going to get a check. And that's what it, that's what it was with Missy. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm going to try really hard here not to be too crass and, 
and abusive of Missy Hyatt. But this is a person that you, you have to understand who Missy Hyatt was, you know, who she was, the, the real Melissa, um, the way she conducted herself. You know, I jokingly say in some of our live shows, she got passed around more than a, than a fucking joint at a Led Zeppelin concert. Um, this was not a prim and proper, you know, professional woman. She she carved out her own persona, both on camera and off. And that was a lot of that was Missy. Now, as far as, you know, WCW demanding she play a bimbo, I'm sorry. There wasn't a lot of choice. I mean, she was not a, a rocket scientist. And the fact that she moved to New York, who, who, and by the way, went on to become a stripper and had her own porn site. I think if you look at, you know, the the total picture in context, most rational people would probably arrive at the conclusion that that was just a desperate att- – the lawsuit was a de- desperate attempt to, to cash in because she knew that Turner Broadcasting was – you know, sensitive to litigation and be willing to write big checks to make them go away. She found an attorney in Atlanta, Allison Braun, I think her name was. Uh, she found in a or bomb or something close to that. She found an attorney uh, that was willing to go after Big Bad Turner Broadcasting and defend the and the, the integrity and, and the reputation of poor Missy Hyatt. It was just a freaking joke. And by the way, that picture, there was a picture because it was entered into evidence. The picture that, that was described in the litigation uh, wasn't nearly as bad as – Missy made it out. Missy and her attorney made it out to be. It was somewhat revealing, but probably no more revealing than anything anybody would see at a beach anywhere in the United States. But there was a picture. It was blown up. Somehow Missy found out about it and used that as an example. But whatever. It's Missy Hyatt. I think she went out and went. She had her own porn site for a while. Um until she, you know, nobody would be willing to pay for that kind of thing with her any longer. It was funny. Tony and I were in uh, at WrestleCon. When we were in our booth together. Tony leans over to me and he says, "Eric, did you see Missy Hyatt?" I said, "No, I, I haven't seen her. It'd be interesting to see her and say hi." He said, "She looks like the Joker." <laughs> it just cracked me up because I could imagine what she looked like. But whatever. Dude, so much Missy Hyatt. You start. You started all this by saying, I don't want to beat up on Missy too bad. I don't want to be too crass. And then you just rattled off every negative thing you could possibly think of about Missy Hyatt. No, I didn't. I've held back. This was this, what I did, this conversation up to this point was me trying, trying my best not to, to go overboard on Missy Hyatt because I could, oh, wait, there's more. I mean, we could continue, but. I don't want to do that. I, I want to try to take the high road here, but that's as that, that's as high as this road goes, brother. It's wow! All I got. Wow! We have different definitions of high road. Uh, apologies to Mrs. Hyatt. I'm sure she's listening. And you think you're going to get sued after today's podcast? Do you think maybe? No, no I don't know. She's a public figure. Uh, the WCW magazine folds around this time. I can't believe this is true, but it dipped below 3000 subscriptions. So it was ended. Are you involved in that decision to end the magazine? I mean, as a kid, I love the WCW magazine, but apparently I was in the minority. Well, I don't think it was a reflect. Yes, I was involved. Yes. I, in fact, I was not only involved, I spearheaded the decision, uh, because as I said earlier in this podcast, the primary emphasis on WCW at this point was cost cutting. 
And if it, if it wasn't generating money or didn't have a likelihood of generating revenue, it was a target. And the magazine wasn't, never did generate any revenue. And nobody could come up with a pro forma that would suggest that that was going to change anytime in the future. I think it was something that WCW did because WWF was doing it and they felt they needed to do it. But there was a lot of costs associated with it. And, the, the, and it what really wasn't because the magazine wasn't any good. It was a good, decent magazine. But there was no distribution. And there was no likelihood for distribution. And if you don't have distribution, that means you don't have advertising. And if you don't have advertising in your magazine, that means everything you're doing is in the red. It didn't really drive anything. It, we didn't feel that it did a good job. We, well, it couldn't because magazines, the lead time on a magazine back then especially, were such that, you know, for the magazine that's going to come out in June, you pretty much had to put it to bed by February. So there was no real promotional opportunity to drive current programming, whether it be pay-per-view or Nitro. Uh, there was no potential for advertising because we didn't have any distribution. There was no positive outlook for distribution to change. So it was, it was a dead end as much as, you know, a lot of people liked the magazine internally and, 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 and as fans, um, it just had no prospect for being profitable. Let's uh, talk about somebody who was going to be profitable for you guys. Alexander Wright. An 18 year old British wrestler billed from Germany who worked the recent German tour as a fill in due to all the injuries was given a tryout on March 30th at center stage and looked really green. Wright is the son of Steve Wright, who was a scientific wrestling legend in Europe, Mexico, and Japan that comes directly from the observer. Uh, what was the, uh, early word you got on Alex, Wright? Well, this is the first time I've ever heard that Alex Wright was British. That's interesting. It's yeah. Acting laser sharp reporting there by Mr. Meltzer. Um, <laughs> that's funny, actually. Um, no, he was German. His father was a, a legendary wrestler. Alex, right now, he's got a, a wrestling school in Germany and, and doing quite well. Um, Ric Flair was a huge fan of of Alex's. I'm not sure how Alex, you know, en ended up on our radar. Again, at that time, a lot of our emphasis in terms of live events was on the European market. We, you know, WWE was, or WWF at the time, was making a lot of money in Europe. The, the domestic um, arena business was suffering in 94. Was, WWF was not doing very well. The numbers were, were declining. If, if I recall correctly, by 1994 for WWE house shows, um, certainly the, the revenue was almost non-existent for WCW uh, for house shows. So in hoping to build our international opportunities for live events and tours, we were looking for international wrestlers like Stephen Regal, Dave Taylor, Fit Finley, you know, you name it. Uh, and and uh, Alex Wright was one of the wrestlers in Germany that we were very excited about. He had a great look. You know, it, he was very, very athletic and a good, good kid to work with. So everybody was excited about him. But I think nobody more than Ric Flair. Ric Flair was a huge, huge supporter of Alex Wright. Let's talk about somebody else who was uh, 
I'm going to get a lot of support. Steve Austin. Meltzer would write the status of Steve Austin and Brian Pillman is considered murky at this point. Apparently Pillman's contract expired a few weeks ago, but he was fulfilling commitments through the pay-per-view, but he's not on the booking sheets after this show. And the signs were far apart enough on figures that it seems like it's going to be difficult to come to an agreement. Apparently WCW's offer was a serious pay cut believed to be in the 50 to $60,000 a year range. Um, which, which would have pulled him from 240 to 250 down to 190. So quite the pay cut to lose 50 or 60,000. Now Austin is still on the booking sheets through the end of May, but his contract expires before that, but it's known he wants a significant raise from WCW and WCW was offering him a pay cut as well. Allegedly in this era, uh, Austin and Pillman actually meet with the WWF and even talk to all Japan uh, a few weeks later. Uh, Meltzer would clarify it's believed Austin's contract calls for 200 dates minimum per year at a thousand dollar per show, which would be a slight raise from what was believed to be a $190,000 base deal. Although both contracts reportedly had several bonuses worked in. So comparing the flat figures could be misleading. Pillman's contract would be 185 dates per year. Talk to me about Pillman and Austin here, because a lot of wrestling fans online believe that WCW missed the boat on the Hollywood blondes and they just, you know, wouldn't get behind them, but what could have been, I mean, they were, you know, still sort of this, uh, cult icon tag team, what could have been, and they both go on to varying degrees of success. And we know what Austin's going to become. What was the, the situation like with WCW and the Hollywood blondes here? Well, again, you know, I hate to keep going back to this, but we were in a cost-cutting phase in WCW. And I know, but fans have a perspective as fans. They don't know what's going on behind the scenes. They don't understand the financial aspects of, of, of the company or what we were trying to do and what our strategies were and our tactics were to try to right the ship. Keep in mind, WCW had never, ever turned a nickel of profit by this point in 1994. And we were, WCW had lost under all the different management that had come through, you know, amounts of money that ranged from probably $3 million a a year in losses up to when I took over the company the, the, the previous year was a $10 million loss. Uh, so everything that we did and, and when I, you know, when I got into man, when I got the executive producer position, when I, when I was, you know, um, uh, I was made a, a senior vice president, executive vice president, all that, um, all along the way, you know, my boss who started out being Bill Shaw and ended up being Harvey Schiller, um, constantly was, we have to turn profit. We have to manage our money better. We, and at this time, particularly in 1994, you know, we were looking at every way possible that we could cut costs from the magazine, as we talked about a little bit, to talent, travel issues were a big part of those discussions because we were just hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging cash when it came to travel issues. Uh, and when we looked at the Hollywood Blondes, and I know wrestling fans are going to look at it from their perspective, and their perspective isn't wrong necessarily, it just isn't complete. So if you're in management, and you're looking at a team called the Hollywood Blondes who had been getting great television time, who did 
kind of electrify a certain part of the audience to to a great degree. And they were great talents. They were great guys. Um, but <laughs> there's a big but there. They weren't generating any revenue. They weren't such great talents that they were making a huge financial contribution to the company. Nobody could look at the Hollywood blondes and say, and by the way, this isn't or wasn't their fault. I'm not criticizing the talent here, in this case, Pillman and Austin. But if you just step back and take your emotion and your fandom and set it off to the side and just get out your calculator and say, okay, how long have we had these guys? How have they impacted our bottom line? How much merchandise do they sell? When you're on a card in a house show, you know, what, how, do the, how, how much better do those house shows perform than house shows where they're not on the card? In other words, you look for quantifiable, verifiable ways that you can put a valuation on certain talents. And it, it's, it's sometimes more art than science. I, I acknowledge that. But when, you, when we, at that time, going back now, 93, 94, we're looking at our talent budget and trying to make decisions about how we can reduce our costs. And when you look at the Hollywood Blondes, yes, they were popular. Yes, they were exciting to watch. Yes, fans liked them. But in terms of putting a valuation on that, how do you do that? Because if you looked at our bottom line, you, know, you looked at your pay-per-view numbers, you looked at your house show numbers, you looked at your licensing and merchandising numbers, you really don't have anything else to look at. Those are your three. And they weren't, you know, standouts. They weren't, we couldn't look at the Hollywood Blondes and say, yeah, but every time they're on WCW Saturday night or when we put emphasis on them on WCW Saturday night, they increase ratings by X. Or when they're in a pay-per-view, those pay-per-views do better by X percent. We didn't have any of that. There was nothing there to suggest that they were worth incrementally as much as, as they wanted in terms of a race. And it's just a hard decision that, you know, inevitably everybody has to face. And at some point, if you're running a real business and you have to manage your costs, and I know this sounds, you know, <laughs> funny in the face of the narrative about the way that I manage money in WCW, but that's where we were at this point. Um, this is before Nitro. This is before the NWO. This is before all the monster revenues that we ended up generating, you know, two years later. But at this point, we were trying to keep the patient from bleeding to death. And we couldn't just put bandages on it. We had to, you know, we had to use sutures. And sometimes we had to amputate in order to save the patient. And that was the case here. Not to get too graphic, but ew. Well, you know, it feels like, you know, when you're... Well, let me just get to Meltzer's report. At least a few wrestlers are being asked to take 20% pay cuts to help balance the budget, which will do wonders for morale. When they hear about all the money being spent on a new set, new announcers, and the new seven figures it'll take to land Hogan. As noted in the business comparisons in February, all the new sets and announcers wound up as an 8% drop in ratings as compared with the same month last year. So I understand uh, when you're talking about, Hey, we're in cost cutting mode. We've got to make our budgets. We're determined to turn a profit, but you could probably, I mean, just try for a minute to play devil's advocate, see it from a wrestler perspective. When you're asked to take a pay cut and you're hearing, well, Hogan's going to get half a million dollars per pay-per-view, blah, 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 blah. Now, obviously you understand that that is an investment because it has other value beyond just house shows and t-shirts and 
uh, merchandise and, and pay-per-view it's all of that stuff. It's ad sales and everything in between for a minute, just pretend. How would you justify that to, you know, a mid card guy asked to take a 50 grand pay cut. And you know, that if you're that guy, Hogan's coming in and he's going to make a half a million dollar bonus on every pay-per-view, which is more than double what you're even asking for. I would have to sit down and explain the decision and explain the strategy and the logic, you know, and it's tough. There's, you know, I, I get it. I'm not saying that, you know, anybody that felt angry or disappointed that they were asked to get a cut while they were seeing money being spent somewhere else, but we were rebuilding. I, you know, and I'm not a, you know, hardcore, you know, sports fan or football fan or anything like that, but I guess, you know, at a high altitude, it's no different than, you know, a team that's been losing, you know, year after year after year, that all of a sudden is going to make some big moves to bring in key players that can hopefully in a year or two or three turn the turn the, the fortune of the team around. That's the position we're in. And when you make those when you're in that unfortunate position of of having to stop the bleeding, figure out strategic investments that would allow you to be profitable a year or two or three years down the road to the, to, to a guy who's a mid card player or maybe, a uh, uh, a, a, a veteran on the team who just hasn't been really performing that well, that's being asked to take a cut or might get cut from the team to make room in a salary cap for a, a higher profile, younger, much more expensive player. It's hard. You can't help but take that personally, but it's business. And unfortunately, a lot of talent back then, you know, some of them, not a lot of them, some of them, um, looked at all the money we were spending and, you know, hearing about Hogan coming in and reading, you know, all the various numbers that were being reported at the time. Sure, they took it personally, but, you know, they had the luxury of taking it personally because they didn't have the pressure of trying to run a business. Doesn't make it easy, but, you know. It's just a fact of life, and you have to move on. And you have to live with it. Sure, there were people that were upset. There were a lot of people that were excited as hell because, you know, if you talk to a lot of the talent back in 93, 94, you know, who knew that, you know, when Hulk Hogan was on the card, everybody made more money. Right. There were a lot of people who were excited about Hulk coming in because they believed, not from a business perspective, because they didn't really un- – most wrestlers don't understand the business of the wrestling business. In fact, I dare say the vast majority of them don't have a clue about the business of the wrestling business because they don't need to. They need to know the business of the, the business of the wrestling business as it relates to what goes on inside of the ring – as it goes to, you know, their character and how they're publicized and promoted and things like that. But I'm talking about the business of the wrestling business, all those boring, you know, line items, you know, that you have to stare at every week, every month, every year, uh, and project for the following year. Talent doesn't really ever get exposed to that. So they can't understand it. They can't relate to it. But generally there were a lot of talent who just knew anecdotally, I guess, from other people in WWF at the time when Hogan was there, that when Hogan's on a pay-per-view, the pay-per-view makes more money, which means everybody on that pay-per-view makes more money. When Hogan was on a house show, that house show did much better, and everybody on that house show made more money. So while there were some wrestlers, some who were 
miffed or disgruntled or disappointed about having to take pay cuts in light of some of the investments we were making for ourselves long term. Um, I would say the vast majority of them were pretty excited about it because it it was a, it was a sign that maybe WCW is going to turn this thing around. Maybe we're not going to be second-class citizens for the rest of our career. There, there was just as many people that were hopeful backstage and, and excited about Hogan coming in, despite the amount of money he was making and what they weren't making. There were just as many people excited about it as were probably more people excited as were um, angry or frustrated about it. You know, you have to admit though, that you can't, it's hard to have it both ways. You know, when you say, well, we're in cost cutting mode, you know, we're trying to save as much money as we can. And oh, by the way, we're going to go out and give the richest contract of all, unless you're also willing to admit that some of that cost cutting is to afford that contract, which you do believe. No, but I, no, I'm, I'm, I hate to interrupt you, Conrad. It's very rude. And I try really hard not to do that, but that's not true. We weren't robbing Peter to pay Paul. That is absolutely untrue. What we were trying to do was minimize costs that we felt were excessive in areas that didn't provide any opportunity to to return on that investment. Because we were overpaying some of our talent, even in the mid-card. We were spending way more money on travel than we should. We weren't cutting travel so that we had a few more bucks in the bank to pay Hogan. We were cutting travel because it was stupid and it was a waste of money. We cut some of our talent expenses because we couldn't justify them any longer because there was no return on the investment. Not so we had money left over for Hulk Hogan. That's absolutely untrue. It may feel that way. I'm not denying that people probably felt that way, but it's not factual. They were two separate issues. The money that was, you know, the, the, the money that was appropriated for Hulk Hogan was not in our original budget for 1994. That was a special decision. That was a unique decision, a unique investment that Ted Turner decided to make that had nothing to do. In fact, I'm going to take that a step further to try to help people understand why it's not true. One of the reasons that Ted and I, I, I heard this directly from Bill Shaw. I didn't hear it from Ted. I want to make that very clear. One of the reasons that Ted was willing to make the decision to hire Hulk Hogan was because of all of the cost-cutting inefficiency measures that we were making six months, a year in advance. Ted finally had the feeling that WCW was being managed properly and that there was light at the end of the tunnel. I'll go back to the Disney MGM tapings, for example. Controversial in the eyes of some fans because, you know, fans didn't like the idea that we were in a soundstage. By the way, I didn't like it either. Talent didn't like it either, with the exception of the fact that their lives got a little bit easier and it was a lot more fun working at the Disney MGM studios than it was not some little, you know, arena in the middle of nowhere. But from an efficiency point of view, it made a lot of sense. From a branding point of view, it made a lot of sense. A lot of front-end costs, you know, it was a very front-end loaded uh, initiative, meaning, you know, the cost of production and everything else on, on the front end of it looked really excessive until you amortized 13 weeks of television out over that and looked at it on a per-episode per basis, all of a sudden, Disney MGM made a lot of sense from a financial point of view. Those were decisions that I made that reflected at least some effort 
to manage costs and control costs while trying to improve the production values of the show. The cost-cutting measures, I've told you the story before. One of the first things I did when I was made vice president, not as an executive producer because I had no influence over the rest of the company at that point. I only had influence over the television side of things. But once I was made a vice president and I did have – I, I, I did have the responsibility for all the other departments within WCW. One of the first things I did, and it was a real goofy kind of a moment, when I brought in all my directors and division heads and sat them around the table, and I said, okay, I want each of you to go to your offices right now and count the number of pencils in your desk. And everybody looked at me like I was high. I said, no, I'm serious. Go, go to your desk, come back, and tell me how many pencils you have. And they did, and they thought I was nuts. I said, okay, that's an example. If you don't know, if you don't know what you have in the way of inventory and resources, either because you have too much or you have too little, how can you manage your business? How can you manage your division if you're not managing your resources? And start with your pencils and then work your way up and figure out a way to look at your business and find a way to cut as many excessive costs as you can. So that we can figure out a way to allocate the resources you need to possibly become profitable. And that approach applied to just about everything that we did. And as we were making good business decisions, and some of them had big impact, some of them had no impact, but it was a mindset. It, when it, was, it, was, it was a culture that I was trying to create because heretofore that didn't exist. Nobody paid any attention to anything. I always harp on travel because it was the most obvious, just glaring black hole of expense that just kept getting – it was just incredible how much money we lost and wasted in, in travel because it was mismanaged so poorly. But that, that was one example and there were other smaller examples of that. But – through a, over the course of a year or a year and a half of approaching WCW's business from that point of view, while trying to develop ideas and strategies that in the long term would turn the tide of WCW and at least give us hope to at some point turn a profit, that's when Ted Turner decided it was worth taking the risk on Hulk Hogan. He didn't say, well, look, if you can go find a way to save you know, $1 million in talent costs, then we'll bring in Hulk Hogan. That wasn't it. The, the, the reason Hulk Hogan came in, and again, he wasn't budgeted for. Keep in mind, again, I talk about this sometimes, and I always – I know I say I'm afraid to go into weeds, and I, every time I say it, I'm reminded by fans when I go out and do these live events that they actually like this stuff. So I'm going I'm to spend a little time on it. But – our budget in 1994, we brought Hulk Hogan, whatever the month was, I don't even remember it was, April or May, whatever. Um, that budget for 1994 was approved in 1993, towards the end of 1993. So Hulk Hogan was clearly outside of the budget. Ted Turner made that decision because he had confidence in the way that WCW was being managed and thought that there was a chance that it could turn around. It was not the case where we had Ted mandated or anybody else mandated that the only way we can bring Hulk Hogan is to cut a bunch of other costs. Again, I understand how it felt that way. And from the outside looking in and look, it's not like I sat down with everyone uh, you know, on our roster and had to explain all of this. And even if I did, they wouldn't have bought it anyway because it affected them personally. But I understand how they felt. I just want to make it really clear. 
because that narrative of, well, we robbed Peter to pay Paul, meaning we robbed, you know, the, the talent that had been on the roster and loyal to WCW, and we were making them take pay cuts so that we could bring Hulk Hogan in. That is such a false narrative and reflects kind of a juvenile knowledge of what was really going on at the time. Let's talk about Spring Stampede, man, while we're here. The dark match is actually worth covering here because I'm interested to get your two cents. It received a lot of national publicity because you've got Danny Bonaducci. That's right. From the Partridge family. But now he's a local DJ in Chicago, which is where this show is taking place. And he's going to beat Christopher Knight, who was Peter Brady on the Brady bunch. And they're actually going to do a wrestling match. Uh, of course, um, Christopher Knight is laughing the entire time and blowing spots left and right. Meltzer would say, Hey, this is great coverage locally, especially, and I'm sure Bonaducci sold a bunch of tickets, but maybe next time they should just give them oversized boxing gloves and not let them do sort of an expose on botched wrestling spots. Probably a good idea, but maybe an execution, not as awesome. What'd you think? Yeah, I agree with Dave on that one. Uh, the, the idea, you know, that was a Zane Breslov, uh, idea. Zane was responsible for local promotion, and he, he did a great job. Now, it wasn't Zane's idea to have them wrestle, by the way. It was Zane's idea to get Danny Bonaducci involved. Um, but, yeah, having him wrestle was a really, really bad idea. Um, and interestingly enough, Danny Bonaducci, I don't know, did you ever see the series that I produced for CMT called Hulk Hogan's Celebrity Championship Wrestling? Uh, no. You didn't? No. Are you serious? You should go back and watch that. Where would I find it? Uh, well, I don't know where you'd find it now, but I'm sure you could. I'm sure if you dig hard enough, maybe on YouTube you could find it. But yeah, we had a reality show called the Hulk Hogan Celebrity Championship Wrestling, where we put together this. You know, Danny Bonaduce was one of them. Uh, Todd Bridges was another one. Aaron Murphy, the the little blonde in Bewitched, which is probably before your time, was one of them. Dennis Rodman was there. Uh, who else did we have? Dustin, who was the guy? Uh, Dustin, oh, I can't remember. Dustin Dustin's Diamond. Dustin Diamond was a part of it. Um, we had a bunch of, you know, B-list celebrities and we, and we trained them. We put them through it and Danny actually ended up being, a, you know, they, they had trainers. I think the Nasty Boys were trainers and somebody else was one of our trainers. And they really, really ended up doing a pretty decent job. But over the course of that eight-week episode, you know, they were training three, four hours a day on set. And and we were controlling what we were teaching them so that we didn't put them in a position where they would botch everything on, on television. Had we spent more time with Danny and Christopher Knight, it might have been passable. But I guarantee you they had probably 45 minutes to figure out what they were going to do before they did it. And it looked like shit. And I agree with Dave on that one. It was many other ways that we could have structured them uh, for their for their dark match that would have probably been less offensive to people who really enjoyed professional wrestling. Yeah, I can't believe we're talking about this, but you had Todd Bridges, Trichelle from uh, Real World, Dustin Diamond, who was Screech on Saved by the Bell, Danny Bonaducci, Butterbean, Aaron Murphy, who was in Bewitched, Dennis Rodman, Frank Stallone, uh, Tiffany, you know, the girl who sang I Think We're Alone Now, and Nikki Zeering, who was a, uh, Price is right model, playboy model. I guess she was, uh, married to 
Ian Ziering from Beverly Hills, 90210. And you had two teams, team nasty and team beefcake. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know why I missed this. It's weird. Um, go, back, go back and watch it. Pour yourself a stiff cocktail or <laughs> and go back and watch it. God, you'll, I think you'll like it. It's, it was so bad. It was great. I just can't believe we're, we're talking about that. If you can actually finish all of these episodes, uh, please, uh, message us on Twitter. We would love to love to talk to you. So let's talk about the uh, rumor and innuendo for this show here. Jim Ross is in the dirt sheets and the rumor and innuendo is that he's going to be parting ways with the WBF. So he's trying to have a conversation with WCW about potentially coming back. Do you remember talking to Jr. in this era? No. All right, let's keep it moving. Aaron Neville saying the national anthem. This is fucking hysterical to me. I kind of forgot that this happened. I watched the show again this week and I think everybody, uh, most of my friends have a fun Aaron Neville impression and, and it's just hilarious to see him here singing the national anthem. And then later he's just sitting at the commentary table with Bobby Heenan and Tony Schiavone seemingly for no reason. Uh, how did the Aaron Neville relationship come to be? I know he was a big supporter of WCW and a big wrestling fan. There was some concert that he had years ago where he was still wearing like a hog wild or road wild denim jacket, which I couldn't believe is real. Uh, so he's still apparently a big wrestling fan. Uh, chat me up about how this came to be and, and what you thought when you watched this back for the first time in 25 years. You know, I, I don't know how we ended up connecting with Aaron in the beginning. I'm not sure who that contact was. It, it wasn't directly, you know, with somebody in our office. I don't believe it might've been through his agent, um, because he was a huge, huge wrestling fan. I think we met him. We were down in new Orleans, uh, previous to this pay-per-view, he, he came to the show, met some people backstage, and I'm sure either Alan Sharp or Mike Weber or somebody who was in PR got his contact info, and it's it started from there. That would be my guess, um, but I, I you know I don't recall how the deal came together. It's pretty unbelievable that uh, Aaron Neville was was there. Uh, uh, let's <laughs> go in here. You're such a prick. You're welcome. Let's talk about the actual pay-per-view. We're going to skip the, uh, the other dark match. Let's get into Johnny B bad and diamond Dallas page. I feel like Johnny B bad opened every pay-per-view WCW ever had. It certainly feels like that. Uh, and he he's here with diamond Dallas page. And this is before DDP was cool. He was still trying to figure it out. He looked like he was at a, uh, trailer park swap meet here. Uh, the, uh, the crowd didn't want to like this match, according to the observer, because of who was involved, but the work was solid with a few spectacular moves by bad, including a spinning head scissors and an over the top rope to pay that they remove virtually all crowd abuse. Good opener. Meltzer dug it. He gave it two and a quarter stars. Of course, Johnny B bad gets the win with a sunset flip from the top rope. That's old school, baby. In just under six minutes. So even though maybe not our favorite performers to open the show, especially in this era, pretty solid opener. What'd you think? I agree. Very solid. And it made me, you know, again, I've touched on this once or twice. Johnny was unfortunately saddled with a really, really bad gimmick and he never shook it. But as a talent, as a performer, as an athlete, he really did have a lot of potential. I actually enjoyed the match. I, uh, have been pretty hard on the Johnny B bad opening of pay-per-views and you know, DDP before he was cool here, but this was actually better than I remember. The next match though, is not, 
I didn't enjoy this and I wanted to, it's Steve Regal and Brian Pillman. And when you hear that, you think, oh, well, this should be good. And you probably also think, well, Steve Regal's going over because we just heard all that about Brian Pillman, maybe leaving, but they go to a 15 minute draw for the TV title. And Meltzer says, I'd say it's a safe bet. The original finish was Regal going over, but was changed since Pillman signed a two-year contract for good money. And it would be a poor investment to beat him in the second match. The only problem is it created another draw situation involving Regal, which everyone is tired of. Aside from that, the work was very good. Uh, he gave it two and three quarter stars. A draw though, on a pay-per-view, I'm not a fan. What'd you think? Yeah, I understand why you wouldn't be a fan of that. I wouldn't either. You know, that was a, that was a Ric Flair decision. He was booking at the time. Um, I'm guessing that Dave was probably right, uh, in terms of why a finish was changed. Uh, but it doesn't, you know, doesn't mitigate the fact that it's a piss poor finish on a pay-per-view side. I'd have to agree with you. Uh, let's keep it moving here. Uh, they get two and three quarter stars. I guess I should mention the next match though, to me is the show stealer. Uh, I'm sure you're probably going to disagree. The nasty boys are in the Chicago street fight against Max Payne and Cactus Jack and Meltzer would describe it as nine minutes of the wildest, sickest, most brutal matches you'll ever see. Words can't describe how unbelievable this match is. These guys are pulling out all the stops. They sort of simulate the concession stand brawl uh, where they've set up uh, like a fake merch stand and they destroy that Sags is going to try to pile drive cactus Jack through a table but it collapses under the weight of them. Brian knobs nails cactus Jack with a snow shovel, like something you've never seen before. Uh, cactus takes one of the nastiest nesty plunges off the ramp onto the concrete. Meltzer would say it sounded like a watermelon being splattered on concrete. It's too brutal for words. According to Dave Meltzer, he gave it four and a half stars. Uh, the nasty boys get the win. Whew. What'd you think? I loved it. Yeah, and <clears throat> I can see why, you know, in, in 1994, this type of match wasn't as common as it is, or probably was in 96, 97, 98, when it seemed to be, you know, every time you watched a pay-per-view or, or even a television show, there was some kind of hardcore debacle going on. <clears throat> but this one was not only a little bit unique for the time, but it was incredibly intense. And for what it was, it was phenomenal. If you like this kind of match, you will love this match. It was brutal. And it, it was another example looking back at it. You know, Mick and I, Mick Foley and I, um, we ended up parting ways for obvious, well, obviously we ended up parting ways. But Mick loved putting his body through some of that brutal shit, like taking that splash on the floor. We were really concerned for for Mick's well-being. He was so determined <clears throat> to do this incredible, you know, to present his style in such a, a dangerous way. And that was ultimately what led to us parting ways. Mick really wanted to continue and expand on that style of wrestling. We felt like it was not only dangerous for him, it was dangerous for people in the arena. Cause he was doing a lot of crazy shit, jumping off balconies. And he just loved that super hardcore style at that time. 
and you know went on to continue to do it in WWF and really made a name for himself you know coming off the top of the cages and all that crazy stuff that he did but uh, it, it was brutal and I don't know how McFoley is walking around today I really don't if you don't watch another match this weekend or this week rather you got to go watch this one this is I mean something you got to see especially if you've never seen it I, I guess I should remind you too this is happening in April. A month prior to this is where Mick got his ear ripped off in a match with Vader over in Germany. We haven't really talked about that a lot, uh, but chat me up. How did you hear about Mick losing an ear? I got a phone call, you know, right after it happened. And I can't remember who called me. It would have been one of the agents that was on the road, but I remember him describing, you know, what happened and, having to pick up his ear and take it to the back and, you know, not knowing if he could have it reattached or not. It was just, you know, I just shook my head. And again, I think it was, you know, one of those mishaps. I think it occurred when Mick was trying to go through the ropes and get himself hung up in the middle of the ropes around his neck and something went wrong and <clears throat> ended up ripping his ear off. But again, it was just another one of those, you know, crazy Mick Foley stories. And primarily because, you know, Mick was just, his, his style of wrestling was so extreme at that point and hardcore, and he was just putting himself through such crazy shit. But, yeah, I got the phone call from, from overseas almost right after it happened. It's pretty crazy to think about, you know, a guy losing an ear in a match. Uh, I love this, this street fight. Uh, I think the Nasty Boys are in their element when they're just doing a brawl like this. I think they're underrated. Uh, Foley really showing off what he's willing to put on the line for the business, probably not advisable, but certainly makes for great entertainment as a fan. I absolutely loved it. Uh, Max Payne is sort of the, the odd man out here. He's not on the next show that they're going to do uh, a, a bit of a rematch and Kevin Sullivan is going to take Max Payne's place at Slamboree 94. Why was that change made? You know, I don't know. That was a Ric Flair call. <clears throat> I don't. You know, I don't, I don't remember the details, if there were any. Um, Max Payne is one of those guys. I know he was there. I remember sort of what he looked like. But, man, if you had to ask me, you know, what I thought about him as a person or, you know, what he was like backstage or any of those types of questions, I I barely remember the guy. And Like I said, I know he was there, but he certainly didn't make didn't make much of an impression. Not to me anyway. <laughs> he he got a little bit of underground fame a few years later when he was walking around filming guys in the WWF and he was teasing that he was going to release it. It was sort of backstage breaking kayfabe footage and allegedly guys were going to be partying and all that that entails. Any, that, is, that could get you beat up or shot. <laughs> any notable Max Payne stories at all besides you saying you weren't really impressed? No, the only thing I remember about him is he smelled horribly. And that was a lot of guys were on the road. You know, they didn't wash their ring gear as often as they should have. So it wasn't completely, you know, out of the norm to be standing next to somebody and interviewing them and get a whiff of, you know, ring gear that should have been washed, possibly disinfected, in some cases actually burned. But he, he was one of the guys who consistently, every time I had to interview him, before I got into management, every time I had to interview him, it was like, oh, my God. 
here we go again. This guy just smelled like, you know, 200 pounds of rotten garbage. Okay. Uh, Sorry, Max. Sorry about that, bro. <laughs> uh, little known fact. I don't think a lot of people know this, but Max Payne would go on to podcast with uh, Vince Russo. They call it truth or consequences. He's going under the name, uh, his shoot name now, Matt Coon. So there you go. Uh, Steve Austin is out next and he's going to retain the U S title with a disqualification win over the great Muda. And they go 16 minutes and 29 seconds. Meltzer would say these two had no choice after the previous match, but to take the crowd down. So they mainly did mat work for the first 10 minutes with Muda doing a few high spots in between. I kind of say uh, this is, uh, on paper, this looks like it's going to be a barn burner of a match. I didn't love it. I especially didn't love the finish. Uh, Austin is going to charge at Muda. Muda's going to backdrop Austin over the top rope. And that's the DQ two and three quarter stars. Even Meltzer would say solid match, but probably didn't meet expectations going in. Uh, what do you think of this one? Watching it back for the first time in 25 years. It was flat. No doubt about it. And it, it certainly wasn't Muda's best work. Neither was it Steve Austin's best work. So I, again, I found myself agreeing with Dave way too much on this particular episode, but, uh, it was, it was flat and both of these guys had much more potential. I'm not sure why they handled the match and why they laid it out the way they did. Certainly can't explain the finish. Uh, another DQ finish on a pay-per-view, eh, not, not, not good booking, but you know, was what it was, but I, I tend to agree with you and Dave. It was a very flat match that didn't live up to expectations. Muda, Muda was Muda had the potential to have amazing matches. He wasn't consistent. He didn't have consistently great matches, you know, every outing. But he certainly had the potential. And you would have thought with a guy like Steve Austin that it would have been a different style of match, but it wasn't. Why was Muda brought over just to wrestle this one match? And then it winds up him, you know, losing by DQ. I mean, I realize I'm getting way on the weeds on booking here, but it does feel like a one-off. Are you just saying, Hey, this is going to be a special attraction, but then because of the politics, you couldn't negotiate a better finish or what led to, Hey, no, come on. Again, the, the politics of finishes with, with Japan is overstated to say the least. It really wasn't that difficult, you know, um, as people like to think it was or suggest that it was. You know, the idea, why do we bring Muda over? This is the beginning of us trying to reestablish a broken relationship with New Japan. Again, going back to the previous administration. Oh God, that sounds political. Going back to the Bill Watts era, there was, you know, some serious business transgressions on WCW's part under Bill Watts. New Japan felt like they had gotten taken advantage of, and they did from a financial point of view to the tune, I think of about three or $400,000 uh, when, when Watts, you know, reneged on some previous commitments. So this was my attempt to try to reestablish that working relationship and bringing some of their talent over and getting them exposure in the U S was a very important thing for, for new Japan at that time. Um, their, their talent became bigger stars in Japan if they were, performing here in the United States. It was a perception thing. And we were bringing Japanese over as often as we could on their dime, not on ours. They were bringing their talent over and, you know, we were compensating them for it, for, for their work here in the States, but we weren't paying their airfares and all of that. So this was just an attempt really to 
prop Muda up, getting some, get him some exposure here in the United States that the Japanese would be able to take advantage, advantage of over in Japan. That's all it was. No more, no less. What do you think of, um, Meltzer describing Muda as quote, I go to America, take steroids, get big. Uh, uh, I don't know. It's a typical day. Meltzer shot. Uh, one of the things that, um, I've always wanted to talk about here is, you know, the rumor that, that this show once upon a time was discussed for flair versus Muda, which I think would have been a cool attraction. Obviously instead you guys, uh, go a different route and you go with uh, Ricky steamboat in that spot for flair's opponent. Do you remember that ever being discussed? Yes, it was discussed, but again, Rick was booking at the time. I think Rick felt for whatever reason, he was more excited about him and Steamboat, probably not unlike some of the, the examples that we've you know dug into in the past where you know Hogan would kind of go to talent that he had worked with previously that he remembered having great matches with or or selling you know selling out pay-per-views or you know house shows with or whatever. Uh, I think this was Rick feeling more confident in his ability to have a great match with Steamboat. I think Rick felt really comfortable given the legacy of him and Steamboat, that they could kind of recreate at least some of that magic. And, you know, I, I can't get into Rick's head or explain, you know, what he was thinking, but my guess is that he just felt like, you know, him and Steamboat would be a better draw because of their history. He didn't have the history with Muda. He might have had a better match in some respects or a match that could have been just as good, but there wasn't the backstory. There wasn't the history. Did you ever, um, you know, it's interesting that Muda is, is even considered for the main event here. Does that say anything about where you guys saw Austin? Did you at this point, or did, did flair, did anybody on the booking committee think that Austin, maybe not here, but in a year or so could have been in that world title main event picture, or did everybody still see him slotted at that U S spot? I don't think anybody saw him as a main eventer. You know, I don't recall anybody standing up and saying, wait a minute, we got to, we got to push Steve Austin because, you know, at the trajectory that, you know, he we're seeing in him right now, six months, a year from now, he could be the guy that, that conversation never took place. So I, I, I would say for the most part, you know how, you know, the same familiarity breeds contempt. Yeah. And I don't think there was any contempt with regard to Steve. I think everybody really liked and respected Steve. But I think because he had been in WCW for so long, that familiarity kind of breeds complacency. And I think people were, I don't know, complacent is maybe not the right word, but I think people were so used to Steve being in the role that he was in that they didn't look at him as being anything other than that, if that makes sense. <laughs> let's, talk, <laughs> let's talk about Rick Rude. Uh, he has the international title, the big gold belt, as we like to call it. He's going to be defending it against sting. Uh, I guess we should mention a month prior in March, he lost it in Tokyo. Uh, he won it like eight days later before he left Japan. Uh, and so now we've got Rick Rude defending that belt against sting. And I really liked his entrance here. He comes out with the robe on and sometimes he would wear the belt around the robe. Sometimes he would wear it under the robe, but here it's high above his head almost Paul Heyman. Like, uh, I thought that was a pretty cool little touch. And 
Uh, it's an interesting look for sting here too. I, I guess we've covered so much crow sting lately. I just sort of forget that this other version of sting existed. Uh, these guys are going to go 13 minutes and nine seconds. Uh, Harley race comes out before the match. So Vader could challenge the winner. Uh, and then, um, sting whips race over the top rope, clotheslines road over the top rope. Uh, which is sort of weird because the last time we saw somebody go over the top rope, which was literally the match before they got a DQ, but that doesn't happen here. Uh, two-star match. I didn't think it was a bad match, but, uh, it is sort of weird at the end where we've got Vader interfering. Uh, what'd you think of the match here? Uh, I liked it probably more, much more than you did because I, you know, seeing Rick Rude in action reminded me of just how fantastic he was as a performer and anytime i see a match like this with someone that i knew and i was friends with that i haven't watched in a long time but you know the the nostalgia probably jades my opinion a little bit but i I liked it i thought it was a decent match notwithstanding the issue over the top rope which is a valid point yeah i thought the match was okay but it is a little disappointing you know on paper i think sting and and rude man they're going to tear it up uh, it wasn't really that for me. And I thought it was a little long and I know 13 minutes doesn't sound long, but it could have been a little tighter from what it was. Uh, we do want to mention here that this is, um, as we're talking, we just passed the 20 year anniversary of Rick Rude passing away. And I know, uh, you've had an interesting relationship with Rick Rude to say the least, uh, anything you want to share about Rick Rude? You know, the, the. There were ups and downs. There were some challenging moments. For the most part, we got along great. You know, we, we came from kind of the same area. I had a lot of mutual friends growing up, uh, even before I got into wrestling and so forth. I've talked about that in the past. Uh, Rick was a really, really interesting dude. He was very intense. He unfortunately got tied up with the Lloyds of London policy, which prevented him from ever getting back into the ring again because he took a big cash payout because of his disability, a back injury that he sustained. And I think after the fact, after he got the money and saw where things were going in WCW uh, and even in WWF, WWE, he really desperately wanted to be back in the ring. And it just wasn't in the cards for him from, from a legal perspective with regards to his Lloyds of London policy. The only way that he could have gotten back into the ring is if he would have paid Lloyds of London back the amount of money that they paid him based on cashing out his insurance policy. Rick couldn't do that. He didn't have the money. He really wanted me to do it for him as part of his compensation package. There was no way I could justify that. Um, It just wasn't possible for me to pull it off. That created a lot of tension between Rick and I. Um, And it was unfortunate that he passed away um, under that kind of a cloud of desperately wanting to get back in the ring, being frustrated that I couldn't come up with the money to pay off his Lloyds of London claim that would enable him to do so. It was, it was, I'm really disappointed that our relationship kind of ended when it did the way it did under those circumstances. It was, it's a sad thing. Eric, I know you, you probably don't want to talk about this, uh, and we can move on if you'd like, but we get lots of questions about whether or not, and I, this is a weird thing to ask. Did, was there an incident at Rick Rude's funeral? Yes, it was. Uh, I went, both Lori and I went to Rick's funeral and 
probably five or 10 minutes after I got to the service, I had, you know, visited Rick's casket and, you know, said a prayer and had a few words and a moment with him and his sister. And I don't remember her name, but his sister came up to me and asked me to leave. And I, I felt I was so embarrassed. Number one, I didn't certainly didn't want to draw attention to myself. I mean, it was a funeral. I was there to pay respects. Rick was a friend of mine. You know, we, we had our issue about, you know, me paying off his Lloyd's of London policy. And, you know, it wasn't a little amount of money. It wasn't a small amount of money. It was about, if I recall, I think it was three hundred dollars or $450,000. And again, let me, let me just spend a minute on that so people understand. Lloyd's of London used to write policies for professional wrestlers. They were expensive policies. But if you were to become disabled as a result of your, your work in the ring, you would get this sizable payoff. In Rick's case, I think it was a three hundred fifty or $450,000 payoff, somewhere in that area. But once you took that check, you couldn't, you couldn't wrestle again. Getting that check means you were permanently disabled. You had to, you had to get a doctor to you know, examine you and sign an affidavit saying that due to your injuries, you were no longer able possibly to perform in the ring, and that was the end of your career. <clears throat> that would trigger the payout from Lloyd's of London. And that's what, exactly what happened with Rick. Well, a couple of years later, like I said a few moments ago, you know, wrestling is getting hot again. And, and so many wrestlers, especially, you know, Rick was relatively young at the time. You know, they miss it. They miss being in the ring. They, they, they miss that connection to the audience. They're naturally competitive people. They know, in, in Rick's case, physically, he knew that he could get in the ring and perform. That, that back injury that he had, whether he got over it or whether it was never really as serious as you know, he made it out to be in order to collect on that insurance policy. Whatever the case was, I don't know. Um, but Rick knew that he could get back in the ring and perform. And especially when the NWO started getting hot, he wanted back in that ring so badly. And he couldn't understand much to the, you know, in, in, in some ways, you know, he had the attitude that, you know, we were discussing earlier on in this podcast. Well, if you can afford to pay Hogan, you know, this, why can't you, you know, pay off my Lloyd's of London policy? It's irrational. It's not really, it's, it wasn't realistic, but that was his frame of mind. And I'm sure Rick made that known, you know, to his family or friends or whatever. And he put it on me. It was like, goddamn Bischoff won't write a check, won't, you know, won't won't give me an opportunity to get back in the ring. Kind of left out the part where I would have had to pay off his life insurance or his uh, Lloyd's of London policy that he had collected on and probably spent by that point. You know, but he was he was angry at me pro probably because we were friends and he thought that I should be able to find a way, given the amount of money that was you know WCW was was generating at the time and given the amount of money that he was you know reading about hearing about you know, knowing that guys like Hogan and Savage and so forth were being compensated, he felt like I should have been able to find a way to get him back in the ring. And I couldn't. It was just, if I would have gone to Harvey Schiller or, or whomever in Turner Broadcasting and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take this guy recruit over here. We're going to pay off his Lloyds of London policy for three hundred fifty dollars or $400,000. 
And then we're going to pay him 250 or 300 or 400 grand a year on top of that. Yeah, they would have had my head on a stick. Uh, despite the narrative that I could do whatever I wanted to do, and I had Ted Turner's money, and I had you know the Turner Broadcasting ATM and all that kind of crap, that wasn't true. I couldn't do it for Rick as badly as I wanted to, but I'm sure to Rick's immediate family and friends, I was the bad guy, and I understood that. I mean, I I knew that that was the case prior to to Rick's passing. Didn't change the fact that I still had a lot of affection for Rick and and valued our friendship and, and our history together, but. You know, I didn't think it would come up at a funeral, but obviously emotions were very raw. And, 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 and when I showed up there, I think it was Rick's sister came up to me and asked me to leave. And to this day, I've never been to another wrestling funeral because of that. I just, I, I'm, you know, I've, I've wanted to, you know, but the politics in wrestling and the history and the, Sometimes the misperceptions or misunderstandings that take place during the course of a relationship, a business relationship, you know, uh, they're there. We all have history with each other or had. And I never thought that it would it was so raw that it would come up at a funeral. But I've probably never been so I, I, embarrassed isn't even the right word. I, I guess I don't know. I don't even know how to describe the way I felt. But. Like I said, I haven't been to a funeral of, of of a wrestler that I've worked with since then because I never want to be in a position where for whatever reason, whether it's fair, unfair, um, be the center of attention in something as you know emotional as someone's funeral ever again. Well, the, um, the sad fact is this is one of the last matches we'll see from Rick Rude here on this show, because on May 1st, that's where he has the injury with sting. He, he loses the belt here to sting. He would win it back on May 1st, but this is where, uh, I believe sting was doing a body press, uh, over the top rope and, um, Rick Rude hits his back on the raised platform that the ring is on. And, uh, that's the end of his in-ring career. So. That's where all that Lloyd's of London stuff first came to be. And, um, I'm glad we finally got some clarity on the Rick Rude thing. We get that question a lot. Let's keep it moving and let's go to bunkhouse buck and Dustin Rhodes on the way here. Uh, we saw promos from both sides, Dustin Rhodes doing his very best dusty Rhodes impression here for this, probably not his best promo of his career. The match though is pretty good. Uh, I'll admit I'm biased. I can't get behind anything. Bunkhouse buck. I have an irrational hate. Um, he much like Prince Ikea to me had go away heat and I don't know why, uh, but this is a, a pretty good match. Meltzer even gave it four stars. Uh, there's lots of bleeding here. Lots of violence, uh, 14 minutes and 17 seconds before bunkhouse gets the win. Uh, what'd you think here of this showing from bunkhouse and Dustin Rhodes? Probably some of bunkhouse bucks best work ever. Um, I, you know, I was like you, I didn't have, probably, no, I wasn't like you. I didn't have an irrational hate for his character. I didn't see his character as being anything that had a big future. He was a good guy. He had the potential of having great matches. Uh, but as a character, you know, to me, he was a little bit of, of a throwback to what was wrong with WCW. Just because there was so much of that kind of regional cowboy, southern um, – character that was just so it was there was just too much of it in in wcw in my opinion 
and therefore I just never really saw that he had you know a, a great future ahead of him. But in this particular match, I think he and Dustin tore it down. It was great. They did tear it down. It's probably to me the second best match on the show. Uh, I enjoy watching Dustin wrestle. Think he was maybe um, underappreciated, and it's rare that Meltzer gives one of his matches a high rating. But he did here four stars. Uh, he would not have a lot of that uh, to come whenever Meltzer would review him. Uh, I think my my hate of the bunkhouse buck character though was just I, I did a lot like you thought it was maybe a little too southern, too regional. And I'm from Alabama, so if you're too southern or too regional for me, but then the over the top cartoonist uh managerial performance by Colonel Robert Parker, I just thought, ah, I just hate this package. Maybe if I would have seen him on his own, I wouldn't have felt that way. Um let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about uh the next match, which is a bit of a throwaway, and the match is good, but it's another guy with an identity crisis. It's the boss, the former big boss man, Ray Trailer. Uh, Vader's going to get the pin here with a moonsault in nine minutes and 17 seconds. It's actually much better than you imagine. Uh, Meltzer even gave it three and a half stars, but afterwards the post-match is, I don't know, a little ridiculous. Nick Bockwinkle, who I guess is, um, is the de facto boss of WCW at this time. He's going to strip the big boss man of his handcuffs and his nightstick and the name, the boss. So this dude's had 14 names since he's been back. The Vigilante, the Guardian Angel, um, Buford Justice. I mean, is it just he's he's trying to be all of these things in one because he just can't be the big boss man. And now you strip him of the boss. What'd you think of the match, the hard-hitting match that they put together, and then this post-match bit where we strip him of everything? Well, the post-match was necessary because we, you know, we had a cease and desist from WWE. The terminology is confusingly similar as it relates to trademark law. And, you know, WCW was pretty, uh, oh, what's the word, unsophisticated when it came to trademark law. We never really had to worry about it in the past. We didn't really have a process to go through and, you know, clear clear names before we used them. It was kind of like, oh, well, he can't be the big boss man, but let's just call him the boss, you know, without consulting with an attorney or, you know, any kind of a of a process to make sure that we were clear to use a name like that. That that's why we had to change it as often as we did. I was the one that came up with guardian angel and put them in the uh, guardian angel gimmick because back at that time, Curtis Sliwa and the guardian angels were getting a ton of press in New York city. And I reached out to Curtis and said, Hey, you know, we'd like to, to involve you and your group, you know, in, in our show and have one of our wrestlers become, you know, a guardian angel and it would be good for you and get you great exposure it would be good for us. Or at least I thought it would because it gave us a character and a gimmick that was kind of, even at that time based in a little bit of reality because the guardian angels were a real thing that was getting a lot of press. You may not remember it, you know, cause you were pretty young at the time, but there was a period of time when, you know, crime was pretty bad in New York city and, and, and the guardian angels were kind of out there, like I said, getting a ton of press. So it made sense to me at the time. And again, you know, Nick Bockwinkle was doing what he had to do to help us facilitate, you know, a new gimmick and a new character because we had to get away from the boss or anything that looked like the big boss man. No, it totally made sense. Right, let's keep it moving here and let's get to the next match. Um, we're home stretching here on the show. Uh, I do feel like we should, uh, briefly touch on, um, 
Bubba Rogers. I mean, he is, I mean, where would you rank him all time? As far as big men, you know, Ray trailer, big Bubba, uh, big boss, man, whatever you called him. I think you could argue he's one of the most underrated big men in the history of wrestling. No doubt about it. You know, especially if you look at Ray during the peak of his career, watch some of his work, watch how he sells, watch how he flies for a guy as big as Ray was. He was phenomenal. And he was a hell of a fun guy to be around. He really was. A little, little side story here. Um, one of the first times I ever took my son Garrett deer hunting in, in, in Georgia, uh, Ray took us out, myself and Garrett and Rick Steiner. And Ray helped Garrett get his very first deer. And I still got a picture of that sitting on the back of Ray Trailer's pickup truck with Ray and Rick and my son and Garrett's first deer. So... Fond memories of Ray Trailer, but yes, he was a very underrated performer. These guys are pulling in all the stops. I know people have been critical of both their works at different time as their their weight would go up and down, but uh they're working real stiff here. It's an entertaining match, probably an underrated match, uh, a bit of a sleeper. Three and a half stars it got here. I would recommend watching it if you're a fan of either one of these guys. Uh, Vader suffered a broken wrist when Boss suplexed him off the middle rope onto his shoulder. And, uh, when Vader was, was motivated, whew, he was hard to beat. Let's get to the main event, Ric Flair and Ricky, the dragon steamboat. Uh, this is a bit different than what we saw in 89. Obviously these guys are a little older. Um, Meltzer would even say no matter how much hard training, the reality is an athlete can't be as good at 45 as he was at 40 or as good at 41 as he was at 36. And no matter how much comedy and gimmicks are involved in pro wrestling, certain performers are also excellent athletes who rely heavily on their athletic ability. Once the bell rings and few in these country more than these two No, this wasn't nearly as good as 1989, but it was unrealistic to expect it to be. They were the two best wrestlers in the world at that time, both at the peak of their games with complimenting styles, one against another doing what was at the time state of the art. Now they are quote unquote, just two great wrestlers having an excellent match and considering the quality of this show that so many voted it as the best match on the show says just how good it really was. These guys are going to go 32 minutes and 21 seconds. Uh, it is a good match. It's not near as good as the trilogy from 89 in my opinion, but some of that is just because I viewed the guys differently. Like when, when steamboat comes out, he comes out in his WWF gear where he's got like a silly Halloween costume on like a dragon. He's got a torch and he's going to blow fire, which is what the WWF made him do in 91. That's not the steamboat that we had in 89, but I understand the need to sort of jazz it up. Uh, the match was, uh, I mean, I guess I would say ruined by the lack of an ending. Meltzer would describe it as, um, Ric Flair was awarded a decision in a clumsy and nonsensical post-match after going to a double pin with Ricky Steamboat in 32 minutes and 21 seconds. And the idea is, you know, we'll have more to, to say about this on WCW Saturday night. And it got four and a quarter stars, a good match. But the finish fucking ruined it. What say you, Eric? Yeah, the finish did ruin it. You know, and I, it, it, as we've said so many times in the past, when we break these shows down, especially with pay-per-views, you know, television, you know, I have no problem with, non-finishes, DQs, hot finishes, whatever you want to call it, um, because you're continuing a story leading to a pay-per-view where hopefully 
theoretically at least, you should have the end of that story in one way, shape, or form. And to have, again, you know, this is now the third time on one pay-per-view, you've got a, a non-determinative finish. Ah, it's it's just bad. And that's was inherently the problem with WCW forever. Prior to me getting there, while I was there, after I left, finishes just sucked. There was no... There was no discipline um, or, or, or strategy when it came to pay-per-views. Nobody agreed or believed that the pay-per-view should be the end of the story. It's okay to start a new one if you have to and continue the story on to the next pay-per-view if necessary, appropriate. But you still have to have a finish. And I think, you know, the, the non-finish finish and then the, you know, awarding work the title after the fact was just... It was bad creative. It was, uh, we do see a rematch on WCW Saturday night. Rick would give the title to Bachwinkle on Saturday night, leading to the rematch with Rick getting the win when steamboat went for a leapfrog, but flares hit him flares head, hit him in the wiener and, uh, <laughs> steamboat <laughs> goes down and Rick got the pin, which is a fun finish, I guess. Headbutt to the dick, um, a high praise finish, you know, the, uh, I guess it's worth mentioning that Rick did the, uh, or steamboat did the double chicken wing thing to Rick at the, um, two out of three falls match that they did uh head to head with WrestleMania in Louisiana back in 89. So they're, they're, they're going to do it again here in this match. And that's sort of, uh, the story they're trying to tell. If you were a long time, uh, viewer of this feud overall, you know, you were, you've seen all the, the flare steamboat matches of note. Is Steamboat Flair's best opponent, in your opinion? Did you prefer Sting, Shawn Michaels, Vader? Where would, where would you rank Steamboat all time? Oh, wow. I, I'd have to say Flair, Shawn Michaels, with all due respect to everybody involved. And it's just a matter of taste. And, and maybe it's because I was, you know, closer to both of them at, when, when Shawn Michaels and, and, and Flair happened. You know, the, the Steamboat Flare trilogy was before my WCW time or NWA time. Really wasn't a first-hand fan at that point. And, and of course, I've watched them back. But watching them back from a historical, historical perspective is not the same thing as, you know, being a part of it in the moment while it's actually happening. So for me, I would have to say Flare Shawn Michaels. Well, I'll tell you what, everybody agreed that this was a great show. Spring Stampede 94 in the Wrestling Observer Reader Poll got 6.9% thumbs in the middle, 2.7% thumbs down, and 90.5% thumbs up. Really a phenomenal show. Uh, usually the, the undercard in WCW would be uh, really, really strong in the main event. Maybe not so much. That was not the case here, although clean finish would have made it better for sure. Even though that match won the best match in the reader poll on the observer to me, the match I still remember most of all from this is Max Payne, cactus Jack and the nasty boys. How about you? What sticks out the most? Uh, I would still go with flair steamboat just because of the legacy and it, it would have been better with a better finish. Um, but I would still have to go with the main event. Well, we hope that you guys will go with us on this journey for 83 weeks. We're having a lot of fun doing this and we can't wait to do it again next week, but this train rolls on next week, man. 
83 weeks. I'm having fun with this. Uh, I know you guys are. And we put up a, uh, a poll and I was a little shocked to see what won. Uh, we, we had some interesting poll topics, uh, but we're, um, we're going to be keeping the, the show coming your way. And I do want to mention that we've already got the next several shows mapped out. Uh, we're going to get your slam poll winner on May 6th, whatever came in second place on May 13th. Uh, but next week right here, the long awaited often discussed beat around the bush, but never in great detail. Korea. Whoa. What can people expect next week? When we talk about the collision in Korea. Wow. I'm excited about that. What an amazing experience that was. What can they expect? Um, we're going to take them into a world that most people don't even know existed and probably still exists to this day. And we're going to take them there through the eyes of not only myself, but Ric Flair and, you know, Scott Norton and a lot of guys that were there and talk about, you know, fish out of water doesn't even begin to cover it. So yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this. So next week it's all about Korea. So set your clocks, your calendars, April 29th. It's all about Korea on May 6th. We're going to cover Slambury 1997 that won the poll. And boy, do you guys love 1997? Cause that is not a great show. May 13th. Slambury 1999, a little more meat on the bone on that one. Uh, May 20th is a, a departure and as is May 27th, we've got a couple surprises. Don't want to spoil them yet, but, uh, we're going to finish out April strong. We're going to have a lot of fun in May. We appreciate you being on the journey here. Uh, Eric is going to be loading up some extra behind the scenes, bonus content from his upcoming travels. You don't want to miss those. It's over at patreon.com forward slash 83 weeks, only a couple bucks to join. Uh, one of the best investments around. And I do want to mention, uh, that tomorrow night is the last night to pre-order Starcast on fight. You'll save an extra 20 bucks. It's normally 79. As long as you order before midnight on the 23rd, it's 59 and you're automatically entered to win our high roller contest, which could get you and a friend from anywhere in the world to Las Vegas Memorial day weekend, front row and first class of everything, four nights in a hotel suite, et cetera, et cetera. Every meet and greet front row to the pay-per-view uh, it's a hell of a deal. And I don't know that you saw, but over the weekend, or I guess at the end of last week, we announced the roast of Ric Flair. What do you think about that, Eric? I think it's going to be amazing. I would, you know, the two things I'm really looking forward to is, uh, hearing Arn Anderson. Arn is a fascinating part of wrestling history. He's got a unique perspective. One of the smartest people I know. So I, I can't wait to 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 hear him on this panel. But obviously, you know, the roast of Ric Flair. Oh, my God. It, it should be a three-part series. There's so much there to work with. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a blast. It will be a blast. And and you're going to be there as well. We got you doing some, uh, some NWO picks. A very rare photo op with Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Sean Waltman, and Eric Bischoff. Uh, but the panel is going to be fun because we're breaking down what you think is the most honest book ever about WCW guy Evans nitro book. And, uh, allegedly, according to the rumor and innuendo guy Evans is going to be there. Uh, so the idea that you guys get to chop it up with some of the other, uh, WCW office people about what was written in the book. That sounds like a good time to me. I cannot wait. I met guy Evans briefly at the last, uh, Starcast, Um, but very, very briefly, just long enough to say hello and, 
you know, I put over his work and told him how much, you know, I appreciated him putting in the time and effort to, to really write a definitive history and an accurate history of, of WCW and what really went on in Turner. But uh, I can't wait to break it down because there's so much there to talk about. So much. I can't, I can't understate how much I learned about what was going on around me that I had never heard before by reading that book. And that's because of the interviews the guy was able to do. He was able to get sit-down interviews with Bill Burke, who was the president of TBS at the time. Um, Joe Yuva, who was the head of ad sales at the time. So many different people who were really, really critical to WCW's future and its demise um, that I found it absolutely fascinating. So I can't wait to be on a panel with him. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And if for whatever reason you can't make it to Las Vegas, you can enjoy it all. Starcastonfight.com is where to check it out. Starcastonfight.com. And be sure to order before tomorrow night, April 23rd at midnight, and you're automatically entered in that contest. And save another 20 bucks. Until next week, he is at E. Bischoff. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.